Reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will, be not, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, who, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion and will wander away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have found, fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone into Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. For ministry, Titius I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come also bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourselves, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. 
may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through the message might be full proclaimed. And all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Promius, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Ebulus sends his regardings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with you in spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. It's, uh, it would be very helpful if you had that passage open with you this morning as we're going to look again at 2 Timothy. Let me add my greeting to Tim's if you are here with us for the first time today, if you're visiting. Very glad to have you with us and we hope you're blessed by your time together with us as we look to Christ together. Now, we certainly had a very concrete reminder this week that we're living in, a, in changing times. Uh, when Queen Elizabeth II died on Thursday night, you know, we, we observed the passing from this world of perhaps the greatest monarch of the modern era. Um, as a British citizen and subject myself, I'm wearing a black tie today as a symbol of mourning for my queen. Uh, just in case you're curious, I don't usually wear a tie up here, but I thought today it was appropriate. When Her Majesty died on Thursday, we didn't just lose a monarch, the likes of, the, uh, likes of which we're unlikely to see again, We also saw the passing of a world leader who carried her Christianity, her faith in Jesus, with a humility and dignity and an integrity, the likes of which we're very unlikely to see again. It's certainly been a very concrete reminder that we're living in changing times. But we rejoice, because the one we might have called the Queen of Queens, we trust, has now been welcomed into the glorious kingdom of the King of Kings. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for its saving power. Lord, that it saves the highest and the lowest. Kings and queens and men and women like ourselves. Lord, thank you for revealing your gospel through your word. We pray this morning that as we read and consider your breathed out word, you would please teach us and rebuke us, and correct us and train us in righteousness so that we may be fully equipped for serving you in the world. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if you're just joining us today, last week we began a short series in 2 Timothy, this New Testament letter. It's a letter written at a time very much like our own, a time where Christianity is marginalized and vulnerable. You see, the first pioneering generation of Christian leaders were being exiled, they were being executed, and Christianity itself was under threat. A new generation needed to take up the torch of gospel proclamation, gospel ministry, gospel living in a world that was opposed to the gospel. Of course, this was the status quo for Christians in the first century. But it comes as a rude awakening for us who've grown up perhaps in the second half 
of the 20th century and the first uh, 20 years of the 21st, uh, an age where Christianity was accepted and respected, where Christians have been treated like the good guys in society, where perhaps we've enjoyed a sense of Christian comfort and security and even entitlement. But of course now as cultural and social Christianity is being systematically dismantled, we're no longer seen as the good guys. If we follow Jesus, we're seen as the bad guys. And so I think we need to take a leaf out of this letter to Timothy to learn how to live as Jesus' people when the world sees us as the bad guys, even though we know that in Jesus we have something that could meet the deepest needs of those around us. So just to recap, last week our theme was treasuring the gospel, treasuring the gospel. And we looked through this deeply personal and heartfelt and very human letter to see three ways Paul suggests that we might treasure the gospel. We said, firstly, be proud of the gospel, not ashamed. We must treasure the gospel enough to be proud of it, confident in it, willing to identify by it, willing to stake our lives on it, and the one whom we know through the gospel. Secondly, we must be willing to suffer for the gospel. Be willing to lay down our rights, lay down our freedoms, perhaps even our lives. We must treasure the gospel enough to suffer for it because we have a glorious future with Jesus in view and we want others to share that too. And thirdly, we must be ready to guard the gospel from opposition and from deviation. We must treasure the gospel enough to guard it because we love God's people. Now, As I said last week, I originally had five headings under that theme of treasuring the gospel. We thought we'd look at number four and five today. Uh, We only managed three last week. But as I was preparing under the theme this week of telling the gospel, I realized that at least points four and five actually fit just as well under treasuring the gospel as they do under telling the gospel. So I know you've got an outline in front of you. Use it if it's helpful. If it's not, use it as a shopping list or a paper plane. I don't mind. Because the reality is, actually, that treasuring and telling the gospel are inseparable activities. If we treasure the gospel, we will want to tell it. We can't tell the gospel with integrity unless we treasure it. They go together. So as we begin, let's have our Bibles open at 2 Timothy so we can follow along. And our first heading this morning will be, click it, it's turned on, entrusting the gospel, point four, trusting the gospel. Apologies this morning, I've got a bit of a cold, hence the mask. Please don't shake my hand after the service. Now, I wonder if any of you have been given a family heirloom, or if you've got something in your family that's very valuable and gets passed down from generation to generation. Maybe something valuable, maybe something weird, maybe something you don't really want but you feel obliged to accept anyway. In the not-too-distant future, King Charles III will be crowned as King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. And at that ceremony, a very special piece of family jewelry called St. Edward's Crown will be placed on his head. Uh, The crown is, I think, one of the most recognizable family heirlooms in the world. It was made in 1661 for the coronation of King Charles II. It's 30 centimeters tall. It's made from solid gold encrusted with 444 jewels, and it weighs 2.3 kilograms. It's quite a piece of work. Uh, When it's not being used to crown a new regent, the crown lives at the Tower of London, 
where it's on display with the other crown jewels. It's guarded, I understand, by 22 military personnel. It's kept in a vault with six-inch thick two-ton steel doors, and the whole area is watched by over 100 CCTV cameras. I got to visit it once, um, gliding past all too quickly on a travelator designed to stop you lingering for too long, just in case you get funny ideas. Now, we spoke last week of the importance of guarding the gospel, guarding the gospel from error and distraction, but just like the crown, but of course of far greater worth and value, the gospel is not just meant to be guarded, it's meant to be passed on and entrusted to each new generation. So in 2 Timothy, Paul highlights two critical ways the gospel must be passed on, entrusted. And the first and most obvious is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I wonder if you'd look with me there, please. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul says this, 2 Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, Timothy has a crucial responsibility and the church with him to ensure that faithful gospel ministry is continued for future generations. It's interesting to notice that there are actually four generations of entrusting the gospel in view here in those two verses. First of all, we have Paul, number one. Then we have Paul to Timothy, what you have heard from me. Then Timothy to faithful men, that's the third generation. And number four, the faithful men who are able to teach others also. Four generations of entrusting the gospel. This is how it's meant to be. One generation entrusts the ministry of the gospel to the next. We have this responsibility to entrust the gospel from God himself. So looking back a little bit to verse 12, Paul says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He goes on to say to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, you then guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So God has entrusted this to Paul. Paul has entrusted this to Timothy. Paul needs to entrust this to faithful men who are able to entrust this on and on. That's how it's meant to be. The church, and pastors in particular, must ensure that entrusting the gospel to each new generation of gospel ministers is not forgotten or ignored or crowded out with other concerns. It's critical to the future of Christianity. A very concrete way we can do this at the moment is to, I, I think, support the work of Queensland Theological College especially in their current needs. Understand this week they've raised $5.4 million towards securing their building. Uh, the building goes on sale this week, and we pray that the last $3 million or so would be raised soon. But bringing things closer to home, we can allow ministers the time and space to train future gospel workers as an important part of their job. I'm grateful I've had the opportunity to do that at various times. I look forward to doing that even more in the future. I pray at some stage where we might even have an apprenticeship scheme here going at Grace, where we can do this as an active part of who we are as a church. Perhaps more informally, we can also recognize and encourage young men 
we notice with the potential for gospel ministry, young men who are godly and humble and servant-hearted, who love Jesus and his people and have a gift for handling his word. And I know it's good to see those kind of people serving in church and being out there in the workforce. That's great. But if we never encourage anyone to give up career aspirations, to give up worldly, worldly goals, to train for gospel ministry, we mustn't be surprised if there's no one to fill empty pulpits around our country in the years ahead. I recognize in our own denomination we've got a lot of catching up to do in this area. We should be encouraging young men to go to college, to train for ministry, to consider the ministry of the gospel as a very, very high calling. But there's another aspect of entrusting the gospel here in 2 Timothy that I think is less obvious, uh, but no less important. For that, we need to look back at chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, there in Paul's introduction uh, to Timothy. And there Paul says that I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Isn't it wonderful that Paul highlights the ministry here of mothers and grandmothers in entrusting the gospel to a new generation of believers? Yes, it's great to train people for ministry, but mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers, you have a ministry to entrust the gospel to the next generation. Timothy's father was Greek and he was likely an unbeliever, but his mother and grandmother were Jewish converts who had a huge influence on his life. What did they actually do? How did they entrust the gospel to young Timothy? Well, for that we need to look over at chapter 3, verse 5, and Paul tells us. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 14, my mistake. 14 and 15. Paul says to him, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So to mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers, never underestimate the value of simply reading the Bible with your kids. Don't under, underestimate the deep and lasting worth of regularly, habitually opening the Bible with your children to make them acquainted with what can give them life. Read Bible stories with your young kids so that they're acquainted with God's Word. The Bible, even just read, because it's breathed out by God Himself, as it says in verse 16. It's able to bring our kids to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the greatest thing we want for our children? Even the simplest picture Bible will be like putting a golden crown on their heads that's been entrusted and passed down through generations of Christ's royal family. And, you know, bringing both of these aspects together, who knows whether the next Billy Graham or John Chapman or even Martin Luther or John Calvin will come about because a faithful parent or grandparent simply read the Bible with their kids. 
course, it might be very difficult for us if our child chooses, if our own child chooses to turn their backs on worldly aspirations and opportunities and financial security, university degrees and, uh, and career prospects to preach the gospel for a living. But it'll be a test of how much we truly treasure the gospel ourselves. Because, friends, the future of Christianity, it's, of course, in the Lord's hands. But he will work out his purposes until Jesus comes back through Christians who are willing to treasure the gospel enough to tell it and see it told by entrusting it to a new generation. Let's move over to our next heading, which is live the gospel. Because the next way we must both treasure and tell the gospel is with our own lives. Paul gives Timothy lots of advice about his personal godliness in this letter, but it's neatly summarized in chapter 2, verse 22, where he says simply, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, when I go to collect my kids from school, there's one particular parking bay uh, where I park where the lines, aren't, they don't line up with each other. It's really annoying because you don't know which of the lines to follow as you're trying to reverse your car into the bay. And if you follow the one, you end up skew out the one side. If you follow the other, skew out the other side. But it's a reminder that our lives and our lips must both be in alignment when it comes to the gospel. If we live the gospel and never say it, well, then people won't hear about Jesus. But if we say the gospel but never live it, people won't believe Jesus. Instead, our lives and our lips must align when it comes to the gospel. And yes, Paul lists a whole lot of awful and ugly character qualities and behaviors all through this letter. I wonder if you felt that as, as Phil read for us, chapter 3. And it might come as a surprise that he's actually talking about people in the church, not outside the church. As someone once said, coming to church doesn't make someone a Christian any more than sleeping in a garage makes someone a car. In chapter 3, verse 5, Paul summarizes such people as those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. That's a sobering thought. An appearance of godliness may come in the form of, yes, being theologically knowledgeable listening to and quoting all the right preachers and teachers, perhaps being regarded by others, maybe even claiming the moral and the spiritual high ground, but denying the power of that godliness by having a heart's door that is firmly closed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's because the outward appearance of godliness is there to serve self rather than God. And sadly, they tend to drag others into their cleverly disguised ungodliness. Uh, 2 verse 16, upsetting the faith of some. 2 verse 18, creeping into households and capturing weak women. 3 verse 6. How's that for an expression? I think it grates a bit to our ears. Uh, let me try and explain what's going on there. It's, it's actually a description of those who are vulnerable due to a sense of their own spiritual shortcomings and their lack of Christian maturity. And so as a result, they're willing to listen to anyone. It's always a surprise how the most outwardly religious people, but inwardly ungodly people, sniff out the most vulnerable people and become their best friends. No wonder Paul is so strong in his command to avoid such people. 
Now, just for interest, the two blokes Paul mentions in verse 8, Janus and Jambres, those are just the traditional names of the Egyptian magicians in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses when he went to ask Pharaoh to let his people go. And just like them, eventually, their folly will be plain to all, as it was to those two men, 3 verse 9. By contrast, though, Paul tells Timothy to live a godly life, knowing that it will be hard. It's not easy to live a godly life, friends. I look at the list here and I see often that I fail. Things I go, I should have done that differently. It's not easy to live a godly life. Godly living will attract suffering and opposition. 3 verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you know, for the sake of the gospel then, we, we should look at the moral imperatives of this letter and perhaps do ourselves a hard audit. Are we pursuing righteousness? 2 verse 22. Or have we perhaps been captured by the devil to do his will? 2 verse 26. Have we become lovers of self? 3 verse 2. Or are we lovers of God? 3 verse 4. Do we only have an appearance of godliness or is Christ's power actually at work in our hearts? 3 verse 5. Are we in fact living a godly life? I suspect that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would say no. We're not living godly lives. And what if it's true that we're not? Well, there is wonderful hope in this letter. Paul shows us that there is a way back. He's not without hope, neither should we be. In 2 verse 25, Paul is confident that even for these people who've turned against him and the gospel, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. There is hope. But more than that, the fact of 2 verse 19 remains. If you flip over there with me. Chapter 2 verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, it is a strange verse, and I don't think Paul's saying that there is actually a, some concrete slab somewhere with some inscriptions on it that say these things. What it appears to be saying, rather, is that this is the church, the firm foundation is the church. And despite the unstable faith of some that we saw in verse 18 of the chapter, God's firm foundation, i.e. the truth about his church, will remain immovable. And there are two realities of view in this truth. The first is the unseen reality, where only the Lord truly knows those who belong to him. That's because only he can see the heart, and we do well to remember that and not judge by what only God can see. It's an encouragement for us as well, because the Lord sees beyond our good or bad actions. He sees our heart and whether or not it's orientated towards the Lord Jesus Christ or not, whether or not that power is actually at work in our lives by his Spirit. So the Lord knows those who are his. But secondly, the second reality is about what is visible. That those who belong to Christ's church must be those who are obviously and intentionally leaving their sin at the door. Friends, as Christians, we simply need to be those who depart from iniquity. 
You can't have the name of Jesus on the one hand, call yourself a Christian on the one hand, and not be actively putting sin to death in your life. The future of Christianity is, of course, in the Lord's hands, but he will work out his purposes until Jesus comes back through Christians who are willing to treasure the gospel enough to tell it through a godliness that aligns what's on our lips with what's happening in our lives. We've done point four, point five, let's get into point six, because the final way we might treasure and tell the gospel, of course, is to, well, tell the gospel. And 2 Timothy, of course, is a favorite to preach at the ordination of new ministers, and 4 verse 1 to 5 is often read as what's called a charge to new ministers. Uh, It was the charge read to me right here when I was ordained almost a decade ago. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, we read this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, it it should come as no surprise that the future of Christianity lies in great part in the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And nothing else. An old preacher once said that preaching is the chariot that carries Christ up and down the world. I'm sure we're savvy enough to recognize when preaching God's word is confused with pop psychology or current issue wokeness. But I sincerely hope we can also recognize when preaching God's word is being confused with things like conservative politics or reformed traditionalism or evangelical theologizing. Yes, these things might be important and very dear to us, but they've got to give way to the word of God for authentic Christianity to endure into the future. And I think it's true that the gospel has got to be preached in such a way that uh, if we just look at the political spectrum, that to the conservative it sounds like the most radical thing in the world. And to the most liberal and radical person in the world it sounds like the most conservative and traditional thing in the world. That's when we know that the gospel is being preached faithfully. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon once proclaimed, it's time that the systems were broken up, that there was sufficient grace in all our hearts to believe everything taught in God's word, whether it was taught by our favorite preachers or teachers or not. If God teaches it, it is enough. If it is not in the word, away with it, away with it. But if it be in the word, agreeable or disagreeable, systematic or disorderly, I believe it. We stand or fall on God's word. I think Spurgeon was right. We must be very careful of hitching up the gospel to other concerns and issues. Together we have a responsibility to ensure that God's word is proclaimed faithfully and unhindered, even when we find it hard to swallow even when it looks like it's not bearing any fruit. Because the temptation is always to go, right, where there's fruit, there's faithfulness. Well, the truth is that sometimes the fruit may come long after the faithfulness. I heard a very sobering quote this week in an interview with some pastors who said that the seed of gospel ministry may lie under the earth until we do, before it sprouts. Very sobering words. The alternative to this faithful proclamation of the gospel is there in verse 
3 and 4. To accumulate for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions and turn away from listening to the truth. It's easily done. But this is the kind of gospel proclamation we must pay attention to above all else. The faithful proclamation that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who died, the one who was raised, in whom we have forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. But there's another kind of gospel proclamation that I think we must all pay attention to above all else. And without this, none of this stuff matters. And that's simply telling ourselves the gospel, often. So yes, Timothy is a church minister and a gospel worker at a crucial time in the history of the church. But if what we, what we read elsewhere in the Bible is true, he's also a young, timid man who's got stomach issues, who also follows Jesus. And so in 3 verse 14, Paul tells him, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. But further back in chapter 2 verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. Still further back, chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, how often do you simply remember Jesus? With everything going on in the world, all the crazy stuff happening, how often do we just remember Jesus? You see, the future of Christianity is not going to be about conquering the evil forces in our society and changing the world, at least in a temporal sense. Friends, the future of Christianity is going to be about the forces of evil in our own hearts being conquered, and our own hearts being transformed, ready for God's kingdom. And the way that happens is as the gospel is brought to bear on our own hearts, often, regularly, habitually, over time, and so when things go well, we, we don't get ahead of ourselves. And we remember Jesus to keep ourselves grounded in the same old gospel story that, that saved us. Someone once said, we never graduate from the gospel. And you know, when things are going badly, when we mess everything up, when we sin, when our own sin clouds our vision of Jesus, when we get doubtful and depressed and anxious, we need, we need to remember Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who loved us to bring us back to God. So look with me back at chapter 2, verse 11. The trustworthy saying. Chapter 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Friends, the future of Christianity is, of course, in the Lord's hands, but he will work out his purposes until Jesus comes back through Christians who are willing to treasure the gospel enough to tell it, yes, to the world, but especially to ourselves. And so I trust that our whirlwind tour through 2 Timothy has been a blessing to you perhaps encouraging you, perhaps giving you food for thought, maybe even highlighting things you need to address with the Lord. We are living in a changing time. 
Things are changing rapidly. We are living in the last days. But as we close, I want to emphasize again what Paul impresses on Timothy, that the future of Christianity doesn't lie in maintaining theological traditions or church structures or Christian culture, and certainly not in our own comfort, security, or entitlement. The future of Christianity lies simply as it has always done, in the powerful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christianity will endure until Jesus returns, as Christians both treasure and tell the gospel, the good news that God, according to 1 verse uh, verse 8, sorry, not 1 verse 8, 1 verse 9, the good news that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks and praise today for what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ. How you have saved us and called us, made us your own, given us confidence that we will live with him forever, that we have something glorious to look forward to, that we will be brought safely into your heavenly kingdom. Father, help us to rest in these things. Lord, even when there is so much going on around us, so much to raise fear and concern in our hearts, please help us to remember Jesus, who has already conquered it all. Please let us treasure the gospel and tell the gospel until Jesus comes back. Come what may. And this we pray for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand together and sing a wonderful old hymn in response to our message.